If we're going to come away from the Song of Solomon saying it is teaching on pure, the purity of married love, and to rescue it from from it just being an X-rated book, Mm. we've got to say it is talking about true love and the examples of true love. Okay, but then I look at Solomon, and even within the book itself, he has reached hundreds of wives Mm. and concubines. It says that in chapter 8. Well, (laughs) where is the purity of married love? Mm. So... um, I suggest that there's a third character. He's not given a name, but he's given an occupation. He's called the shepherd in chapter 1. And I think he's the true love of Shulamit. And who is Solomon? Well, I must say, he's the bad guy. Welcome to Pastor Scholar, Bridging the Gap, examining how academia and the church influence each other. I'm Chris Miller, your moderator. With me, as always, is Dr. Corey Marsh, professor of New Testament at Southern California Seminary and Pastor Ryan Day of Revolve Bible Church. And joining us today is special guest Dr. William C. Varner, professor of biblical languages and Bible exposition at Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. Dr. Varner has a Master of Divinity and Master of Theology from Biblical Theological Seminary, known today as Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, he received a master's degree in Jewish studies from Dropsy College and holds a doctorate in education from Temple University. He has authored more than 20 books and over 100 journal and magazine articles. Two of his most recent titles include uh, The Preacher and the Song, A Fresh Look at Ecclesiastes, which I will hold up for our viewers, mm-hmm. as well as a handbook for praying scripture featuring the Legacy Standard Bible. I'll have that as well. Welcome, Dr. Varner. It is a privilege to have you. Uh, tell us about hey, this. Don't, don't forget that third one there. Oh, and the third one. Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm neglecting. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the Apostolic Fathers, an introduction and translation. Uh, can you talk about these titles uh, very briefly? I'd be happy to. Yeah. Well, they all came out like uh, in three successive months. I never have um, published books like that where they just keep coming out. But uh, the prayer book, Handbook for Praying Scripture, came out in January. And uh, this is one of those books that my wife reminds me of. Uh, Honey, could you write a book for the rest of us sometime? (laughs) Because uh, like academics, a lot of my books are oriented more towards the academy. But this is really oriented towards every believer, praying scripture. I've prayed scripture for many years, uh, benefited from some of the classic works on praying scripture. And uh, as a result of our work on the Legacy Center Bible, I said, I wonder if I could put together uh, a collection of prayers from scripture. And that's that's the result. It looks it, like it's divided up by day. Is that? Yeah. Or it's divided up into 31 days so a person can pray through uh, a month. Uh, and then there's a group of seven days of prayers for Sunday through Saturday, and uh, those are a little bit more in-depth. Okay. Uh, so one can just, like if today is the 18th or 19th, you pray the 19th day. Or if you want to go a little bit more in-depth, you can pray uh, on Monday those prayers or 
are on Thursday, those prayers. So, uh, but it's all scripture. And and, uh, I'm careful if I adapt uh, a scripture, because sometimes Paul says, you ought to pray this. And sometimes I'll adapt that and say, oh, Lord, I, you know, uh, I'll make it first person. Uh, So whenever I adapt a passage, there's a little asterisk there beside the reference saying this is not literal from the LSB, but adapted. But I try to keep the sense of the verse. So that's the uh, the uh, and then this one is, what is uh, yeah, the apostolic fathers. Yeah, what the is apostolic that? fathers, r- sadly wrongly named. They were not apostles, <laughs> uh, but in the 16th century, the first edition of them uh, was called uh, the Apostolical Fathers, and the name stuck. Huh. It's the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament. That's simply mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Some of them overlapped. With the Apostle John, uh, certainly some of them were living in the 70s and 80s, but their main thrust of their ministry was either in the 90s, uh, first century, or in the first few decades of the second century. So overlapping with the apostles, that's why it's called the Apostolic Fathers, uh, the earliest being probably the Didache, hmm. which is a church manual, and one of my favorites. Second Clement, there's first and second Clement. And then there's this long, long book, uh, The Shepherd, Shepherd of Hermas. Hermas. Yeah, it long and long and long, it'll tire you out. But <laughs> it's about the closest thing to our apocalypse, our revelation. Uh, so it's a variety of works. And, and then, of course, um, uh, I, I try to get back to the Bible every now and then. <laughs> and uh, I, I have a special approach. Uh, I don't think it's wild or crazy, but a special approach to Ecclesiastes hmm. and Song of Solomon. And this is the preacher and, of the song. Yeah, that's it. The preacher, that's Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes, and the song, which uh, the biblical title for the book is not Song of Solomon, but the Song of Songs, hmm. which is Solomon. And uh, since Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 is um, inside our rings, uh, you know, uh, uh, love, uh, the, the characteristics of love. But Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 give four or five characteristics of love. And one of them is that it's uh, a very flame of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hebrew is Shechevet Yah, and the Yah is the abbreviation for Yahweh. So, um, <clears throat> so that book uh, is... Um, and I take the three-character view on that rather than just Solomon and Shulamit. Uh, I, there's an unnamed character who's simply called the shepherd. So the shepherd, uh, uh, Shulamit, and, and Shlomo, or Solomon, are the three characters. So, uh, you know, it's a fresh read of, of those two books. And so I thank the Lord. Um, uh, I don't write them that quickly, but they came out rapidly, you know, January, February, and March of this year. But uh, so those are the most recent ones. And thank you for allowing me to share that. I, Chris, can Absolutely. I jump in here for a second? Please, I, please. I want to say a few things about Dr. Varner that he probably wouldn't say about himself, but this man's literary output, especially in this season of his life, is remarkable. I mean, these books are coming out and they are feeding both the church and the academy, which speaks perfectly to what we're, we're, we're about here, the pastor-scholar bridging that gap. I meant, I, Dr. Varner, actually, we, we met a couple of years ago to online and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, years ago, I actually, before I knew you, I, I attended a seminar that you did at uh, ETS. No, it was at it was at um, Shepcon Shepherd's in, Conference in two thousand nine, I believe it was, and you did this remarkable just a uh, seminar on James, 
And, and it was so impactful for me that even now that I teach New Testament at uh, Southern California Seminary, I still use the notes from that seminar for my lectures. Wow, that's high so, praise. Yeah, Dr. Wa- Dr. Varner's got excellent commentaries, Greek uh, exegetical commentaries on John, on Philippians, other ones as well. He's got, you know, apostolic fathers. He's got commentaries on preacher and the psalm, the praying through scripture. His literary output really does feed both the church and academy. And I don't know how you do it, but I'm— I know I'm one of, what, 15,000 members or something like that of nerdy biblical languages. You know, one of the biggest Facebook groups of for Greek, uh, for, you know, for Greek exegesis and Greek thought and insight. Dr. Varner administers that, uh, administrates that, that particular forum as well as others. And I don't know how you do it. Well, can you become my manager? I, I'd be <laughs> happy to hire you. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, well. I don't know how, well, I was going to ask you, whoever your manager is, man, I, that, that, that's who we need to be taking notes from, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it helps that I've taught for a number of years. In my 20s and 30s, I did not have this literary output. But when you've taught for 30, 40, 50 years, you start to say, well, I'd like to, you know, share this outside the classroom. And and so it helps Hmm. uh, that I've taught uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And Israel trips, what, 50-something times? Yeah, 51 times. The first first time I was a tourist. Wow. And the next 50 times I've been a teacher and a a guide. Now they have a monument to him there, right next to the Temple (laughs) Mount. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, there's a, uh, the, the trilogy you put out, we even talk about that, that incredible tril- trilogy of, of the Messiah. And uh, those books through Fontes were, were wonderful. And somehow he's also managed to be one of the lead translators of Legacy Standard <laughs> Bible in all this spare time. Uh, yeah. and, and throughout all his soccer games that he's watching. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, actually, to piggyback on that, can you talk a little bit about uh, the translation of the LSB? And for those tuning in, what is the LSB? Yeah. And, and how did it come about? I'd be happy to, yes. Uh, well, let, let's begin with the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it went through three uh, revisions. And... Um, uh, it, it really, uh, the, the Legacy Standard Bible takes the New American Standard Bible as a base. And if they did a good job, and we think that that's what the Greek and Hebrew says, we didn't mess with it. But uh, if we thought that we could improve on it a little bit, we did. Uh, it, it's not really right to say it's the NASB light. Uh, uh, because there's enough significant differences to where it's a translation in its own right. Uh, but uh, but uh, that's why it's a legacy standard Bible. We maintain the legacy of the basic formal equivalent or literal translation method uh, that the NESB is known for. We continued that. Uh, some of the special things that probably jump out and grab a reader is that in the Old Testament, what is called the Tetragrammaton, uh, God's name in four letters, Yod, He, Vav, He, um, it, it has been traditionally translated with a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to distinguish it from Adonai, capital L, small O-R-D. But we thought that uh, we should make an effort to translate it uh, or transliterate it as Yahweh, and I know there's a debate. Are are we 100% sure that uh, that's what the high priest said when he went into the Holy of Holies? The Jewish tradition was that was the one time a year he would pronounce the sacred name. Are we absolutely sure he said Yahweh? No, we're not absolutely sure, but I think we're sure enough uh, to say let's 
Let's translate it as Yahweh. Now, that's, there's a bit, bit of a shock treatment for Bible readers who are not used mm. to that. Uh, I mean, just think about it. Yahweh is my shepherd. I mm. shall not lack. Mm. Oh, 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 well, well mm. you know. But um, yes, but once you get over that shock uh, of reading Yahweh instead of Lord, uh, it is the name. That, you know, God says that's his name. And I like to think of the Shema. Uh, I won't say it in Hebrew, but uh, here, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, is your God. Uh, and you shall love the Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And, uh, and also, um, I mean, that's very, very important. And, and then there's the what's called the Aaronic blessing. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Yahweh lift up his face upon you and mm. give you peace. Well, the very next verse says, So shall you, the priests, put my name on the people. So God says it's my name to put it on the people. And we understand all the academic issues involved in that. Mm. We really do. Uh, but uh, we think it's refreshing. And then when you pray, oh, Yahweh, uh, you, you know, these these familiar texts that we've said, Lord, for many years, I think it adds a personal relationship uh, uh, to that uh, that aspect of praying it as well. Uh, so there, you know, and uh, years ago, uh, uh, it, it was argued very strongly by a number of people that the word doulos in the New Testament, uh, servant, you know, you can be a free person and be a servant and get paid. But doulos has a very strong meaning of mm. slave. Mm -hmm. And I realize the word slave ring in the Bible that we are slaves. Politically, it's not really correct but even some of our African-American brothers who are would be very sensitive about that understand that this is not an <laughs> advocacy of horrible uh, racial slavery. Uh, yeah, yeah, racial slavery, not at all. But it just means that we don't own ourselves. Mm. We belong to God. So when James says, a slave of mm -hmm. God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, I belong to him. Mm. Uh, he determines my future. So that's mm. just a couple of the features of the LSB that might jump out and grab a person as they're uh, reading. How stunning is that, too? Just when we mentioned James, that here's the brother of the Lord, and he's referring to himself as a slave mm -hmm. of wow. God and of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, wow. yeah, I've often said, you know, uh, come on, James, play up the fact that you're a brother of Jesus. <laughs> right. And he doesn't. No. He doesn't play up the fact. Listen to me. I'm Jesus' brother. <laughs> I'm Jesus' slave. Wow. Just like you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, wow, I, that... Uh, you know, it communicates to me at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I uh, had, a, had a, a, a wonderful delight of working on the – we had six primary translators. I and Abner Chow worked primarily on the New Testament. Joe Zakevich, professor at uh, Master Seminary, and uh, Abner worked primarily on the Old Testament. And all of us consulted, huh. like I consulted on the Old Testament. Did we yeah. just, I'm looking over there, we happen to have a LSB right there. Who brought that? Do, do we have an LSB? We actually have them. Yeah, we use it. I think well, that, there's actually one here. Yeah. Oh, and you didn't good. bring it in. No, huh? I didn't. Well, I, I brought a, uh, a little uh, LSB New Testament. There we go. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I think that's Matt's Bible. Yeah, so, uh, yeah you know, uh, 
uh, you know, this takes a long time to do. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't been for COVID, we wouldn't have been able to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seriously. Wow. Uh, we were under the, quote, pandemic, uh, whatever that is defined as, uh, when we were doing the main part of the New Testament. And I remember those sessions because we didn't have live classes at Masters mm. University then. And I'm sitting and we're doing Zoom and all six of us are on Zoom and uh, we're working through uh, I and, and, and them, the, uh, the New Testament. Uh, and because we weren't meeting in classes, I think that enabled us yeah. to get it done quicker. Now, mm. we did have consultants as well and we sent it out to consultants and we heard their response but it was primarily six on the uh, translation team that did the heavy duty of the work. So it could have been called the uh, the PST, I guess, the pandemic uh, study. Uh, pandemic, I'm not uh, sure how that would sell, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it is. It's the pandemic, pandemic study Bible, PSB. It just pandem- doesn't sound as well, right? Yeah, the pandemic version. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> might turn some people off, but it might minister to others who are really go. suffering. You never know. Uh, pandemic <laughs> standard Bible. There you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little bit about the uh, Legacy Standard Bible. And uh, out of that, of course, came the, the, the prayer book. Mm. Yeah. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Because all the texts are taken from the uh, Legacy Standard Bible. Well, on that note, um, and just getting kind of to our topic today, um, I'm just curious, and I want to discuss, what do we do with the Old Testament? And, and I'll just mm. uh, pose this to you, Dr. Varner. Is it important that Christians read and understand the Old Testament? Absolutely, and I think you probably would expect me to say that, (laughs) but I really believe that with all of my heart. Uh, Sometimes we neglect the old, and sometimes pastors neglect the old, and I think uh, one of the reasons is uh, in our seminaries, uh, you know, maybe the Old Testament has been neglected, and uh, pastors have... uh, they come out of seminary with a lot of maybe Greek and 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 New Testament books, and uh, and the Old Testament is so long compared mm. to the New Testament. So uh, pastors uh, tend to think that maybe I'm going to put my emphasis on the New, and rightly so. I had one pastor uh, uh, tell me the reason I preach uh, on the New Testament mostly is that we are New Testament Christians. Okay, I, I can relate that, relate to that, but it's the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, that promises a New Testament. So maybe uh, if we're going to understand the fullness of the New Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament as well. Mm. And then, of course, wow, I just think of uh, my, my course verse, an Old Testament survey professor, mm-hmm. is Romans 15, 4. Mm. And we memorize this as, as Old Written Testament. Written for our instruction? Yeah, that you one? got it. Oh, for whatever, job. <laughs> whatever was written in earlier times, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction mm. so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, we might have hope. Every now and then I hear somebody say we need to unhitch from the Mm. Old Testament. Well, the Apostle Paul did not believe that. He says we go to the Old Testament for instruction, Mm. for perseverance, for encouragement and hope. And he was not talking about 1 Corinthians here. He was not talking about the book of Acts, (laughs) as wonderful as they are. He's talking about the Old Testament. Mm. 
And when Paul himself said all scripture is theopneustos, mm-hmm. God breathed, he's talking about the Old the Testament, Testament scriptures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, no, we're not going to unhitch ourselves. I don't know how many uh, it is. Uh, uh, my, my scholar friend over here might correct me. Depending on whether you define it as a quotation or an allusion, if you count quotations and allusions to the Old Testament, there's over a thousand of them mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Uh, the uh, the New Testament writers are are Absolutely. constantly drawing on the Old Testament. So and over three hundred direct quotations, direct and quotations, yeah. and many allusions. Yeah. And and so unhitch ourselves? Right. Uh, no. Uh, and uh, I, I I really think that um, uh, without neglecting the new, of course. Uh, a balanced ministry needs to not only be showing the Old Testament in the New Testament, but going back and, and seeing what Paul said. And we can find encouragement and instruction and hope in those scriptures that he spoke about. Mm. Isn't that a great point if I can jump in real quick? I'm sorry, Ryan, for you to say something. No, but I was just thinking as you were talking, the Old Testament, there was a time when the Old Testament was it, it was was God's word Without the New Testament, it always it existed fully sufficient, inerrant, authoritative as God's word, and did was not dependent on the New Testament in any in any sense. Absolutely. That the same can be said for the New Testament. The New Testament has never existed apart from the Old Testament, right? Or as yeah. maybe Daniel Block would refer to as the First Testament, an uh, older New Testament, first Second Testament. Not a perhaps. bad idea, right? <laughs> I, I agree. So yeah, I mean, think about that. What like Dr. Varner is saying when Paul is saying things like. The, all scriptures inspired, theopanustos, right? God breathed. He's referring to what we would call the Old Testament and that they were, for Timothy, to make him wise to salvation, even in Jesus Christ. He's still talking about the Old Testament. He has to be, as the New Testament was still being written. It is remarkable how uh, some could ever say, as Will brought up, to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Think of all those a thousand or so allusions mm-hmm. and echoes, 300 or so direct quotations. There is absolute continuity between the old or that first and second testament. It is irresponsible for any pastor to say, mm-hmm. hey, we are only New Testament believers and let's unhitch that Old Testament. I couldn't think of a more derelict of duty for a pastor to say something like that to his to people he's training. Yeah, I, I agree. I And I think maybe part of it has to do with maybe even like a census planner view of interpreting uh, the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament rather than taking the the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament as contextual. Mm. Do you think that that has something to do with maybe why there's a, a desire to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament because think, we're not know, that's translating a, that's the— That's a good insight. That's mm. a good insight. Well, we have a fuller sense in the New Testament. So with a fuller sense, uh, mm. we can do away with the old? Mm. No. Uh, let's look and see how the New Testament quotes and uses the old, and it's far more than a fuller sense. Sometimes it's just plainly literal. Mm. And then, of course, you've got prophecy and fulfillment. That's not fuller sense. That's like a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And, and Matthew says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Mm-hmm. And that's fulfilled in Miriam. I mean, that's literal. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that that sense is plenior. And I think I understand what the hermeneutics professors are saying when they say that. Can, but, you, can but, you define uh, I, that? I'm sorry, since it's well, plenior. Well, uh, the New Testament gives a fuller sense that is not, there in the Old Testament. That's the idea. It's a census plenior. It's a fuller sense. Well, we believe it was there. It might be embedded and it might be you had to dig it out. Uh, 
but it's not hidden uh, from uh, uh, the New Testament reader. The New Testament reader obviously has the privilege of seeing its fulfillment. And certainly there is typology. Uh, we will, uh, we're getting into hermeneutics here. Uh, there is typology, but a safe um, uh, approach to typology is if we stick with what the New Testament says are types in the Old Testament. We're not going to go wrong on the crazy typology. I think of the tabernacle. Some of our dear Plymouth Brethren writers in the early days of the movement there, everything in the tabernacle was typical of mm-hmm. Jesus. Even the wood frame <laughs> yeah. of the tabernacle. You mean the rings for the poles? There go you through. go. Yeah. The wood is typical <laughs> of the humanity of Jesus. Well, come on now. We can go too far in typology. Mm. But if we stick with what the New Testament says that the tabernacle is typical, then we're going to be on safe ground. So, But that's not census plenior. That's simply saying that was a type, and here's the uh, fulfillment of that type mm-hmm. in the New Testament because the New Testament says it is. Dr. Varner, I, speaking of the importance of the Old Testament, one of my favorite Old Testament books is Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I think one of the most neglected books of the Old Testament is the Song of Songs. Um, you mentioned earlier that you take the three-person view. Could you just say a little to our audience about what the three-person view is and how it differentiates maybe from the two-person view? Sure. Um, and also, I'd love to talk about Ecclesiastes sure. and get your take sure. on that sure. as well. So kind of two loaded questions there. Well, the two-person view is the predominant view. Solomon and Shulamit is her name. Uh, and uh, But here's, here's the problem. <sighs> If we're going to come away from the Song of Solomon saying it is teaching on pure, the purity of married love, and to rescue it from from it just being an X-rated book, Mm. we've got to say it is talking about true love and the examples of true love. Okay, but then I look at Solomon, and even within the book itself, he has reached hundreds of wives Mm. and concubines. It says that in chapter 8. Well... (laughs) Where is the purity of married love? Mm. So um, I suggest that there's a third character. He's not given a name, but he's given an occupation. He's called the shepherd in chapter 1. And I think he's the true love of Shulamit. And who is Solomon? Well, I must say he's the bad guy. Mm. He's the bad guy who is coming along and saying, you know, come down to my uh, uh, Jerusalem you can be part of my harem. And guess what? Listen to the girls here, the daughters of Jerusalem, as they cry out, oh, he's wonderful, he's wonderful, he's wonderful. They're part of his harem, and they're trying to convince her to join them. Uh, and she doesn't. She remains firm in her loyalty of her love. And, and so when we get to chapter 8, we see them reunited uh, and uh, they live happily ever after. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think uh, when you understand that love has been tested and it has survived, the reality, the true love has survived, it adds a little bit octane to that statement. Love is uh, a fire. It's a very uh, a fire of Yahweh, and many waters cannot quench that fire. She's gone through the waters trying to quench that love of her for for her beloved, and she survived because she remained faithful. Mm. 
and uh, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. Now listen, if a man were to give all of his possessions for love, it would be condemned. I mean, here's a man with all of his possessions trying to buy her love. No. Right. Uh, who's the song? Who's the singer? Uh, can't buy me love. <laughs> the Beatles. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. How can you forget no, the no, Beatles? No, no, it was an African-American gal. Uh, who was it? Can't uh, buy me love. I'm thinking of the old Beatles song. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe it was both. Maybe it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah so, maybe, so, we've never seen them together, the African-American singer and the Beatles. Maybe they're the same person. Go. Yeah, mm. okay. So you can't <laughs> buy me love. Oh, it was the Beatles. You're right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, so no, Solomon, you can't buy my love. You can't buy it, uh, but I, I'm going to be uh, faithful to my shepherd love. So, so why should someone in our in say in our church? Why should they read Song of Songs? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, contrary to what a unnamed pastor uh, <laughs> from a few years ago uh, argued that it's a sex manual. Oh. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we won't mention that. That would be Mark Driscoll. Oh, I'll say I, it. <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> you know, it's not a sex manual. <laughs> it does have some intimate descriptions, mm. but compared to the X-rated stuff that you read today, even mm. by Christians, it's mild. <laughs> yeah. But mm. but these are the the purity of love between a husband and wife are, are described there. So so, uh, uh, but it's not just a sex manual. Uh, it it's describing what true love is all about, and and if true love is going to stand the test of a trial uh, of her being drawn away to me that shows the power hmm. uh, of married love so no no i think it is the uh why and i'm not the first one to say this the intimate details that are uh described in the song of solomon are married uh you know a, a married couple uh but uh, she's reflecting on him he's reflecting on her and she's saying you buddy shlomo cannot buy my love mm. i'm going to be faithful to my now is there is there a spiritual message here well you know wow you talk about allegory mm-hmm. allegory uh, the christian allegorists in the middle ages what do we Go do to town with this <laughs> yeah. what yeah. do we do yeah. with this book yeah. you know he lies between my breasts <laughs> <laughs> what do we do i mean the, these are monks and, and and single guys in the middle ages yeah They're which saying, makes it even weirder if we're gonna say that's the the church and jesus I uh, mean, yeah that's well, just well what it is is creepy uh, yeah you know, jesus is here and one breast is the old testament and the oh, right. other breast is right. the new right. testament right. so <laughs> jesus we that bullet yeah. wow <laughs> Jesus connects the old and well, the when new. Well, when you make marriage a sacrament, you gotta you got to start doing stuff well, like that. Well, that's true. Mm. That's true. Mm. So, uh, so uh, some of those medieval uh, uh, scholars, or most of them were single monks, allegorized it all. Okay. Well, we don't have to allegorize it to see, okay, shepherd, wow, wow. That's amazing that the true love is is the shepherd and our Lord Jesus is the shepherd. My bride, well, in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. So there is, I, I think, a general typical message to the book without going into all of the details of making it so many types that uh, Jesus is our shepherd, we are the bride, and there is a world out there that's trying to lure us away 
from our shepherd. So maybe maybe not allegorical interpretation, right. but you would say that yeah, there could be a comparison there. Yes, mm. yeah, a typical uh, mm-hmm. you know without going into the extremes of allegory. Yeah, mm. great. Could, I'm sorry, Chris. I don't know if you had a question, but I'd love to hear a little bit about Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. as well. One of my favorite books. That's my favorite Old Testament book, too. I, 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 my first two Bible studies I ever taught on my own was James after the seminar that you that I that oh, I my. first saw you went, right? And that inspired a, a, for me teaching a, a, a Bible study on James. And the next one was Ecclesiastes. Chris, you were a part. This I, was years I ago. I still have my notes from yeah. both the James studies. And yeah, Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes study. afterwards. So I'm with you, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite yeah. Old Testament book also. Well, my approach to it is not maybe as a radical approach as my approach to the Song of Songs. But I... Um, uh, oftentimes, and I use this in preaching, that the key to a house is sometimes hanging near the back door. Mm. Whether that's wise or not isn't the issue. But oftentimes at the end of an Old Testament book, there is a key near the back door of the book that can help us to understand the book, like Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. Well, the last thing that, uh, uh, and I do believe it's Solomon uh, uh, writing this in his old age, uh, says uh, the words of the wise are like goads mm. and are like nails fixed by a master builder. Uh, if he's comparing what he said to goads and nails, perhaps we should look at that. And, and, and some of these problematic, almost like secular statements in the book that Solomon is stating, perhaps those are intended to be goads that uh, prod us on. <laughs> you know, a goad is, you know, uh, it prods you on. I'm glad we got that on camera. Our special <laughs> guest just physically assaulted me. Yeah, right. So, so <laughs> the, it's about time somebody <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that. the goad sort of like goads us on, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Keep reading mm. and you'll get to a nail. Mm. Actually, Elohim is a God is mentioned 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm. This is not a secular book. Mm. 40 times. Uh, And so if you're reading this and it sounds like he's secular-minded and worldly-minded and everything, just keep reading. He's going to get to a nail. Mm. And that nail is where God is mentioned. Mm. Uh, And remember your creator in the days of your youth. What a wonderful statement there. But if you read the previous part of that, it's like, oh, yeah, life is meaningless like him. But remember God Mm. in your youth. Uh, And and so he – read the secular passages or the doubting passages as goads, but then get to a nail and that'll secure it. Mm-hmm. And of course, he ends with a nail, doesn't he? Yep. Fear God and keep that's his right. commandments, yep. for this the is the whole, whole of man. duty of life. Yeah. yeah. Whole of man. So uh, that's my approach uh, to it. Uh, and uh, I don't think it rescues the book. Uh, like, um, uh, like I'm, I'm not saying oh, nobody's understood it until I said this. Uh, I, I just see it as a as Well, Ryan a key. now understands it since you said it. <laughs> <laughs> a key on the back door to use to unlock some of those secular, pessimistic mm. passages. Uh, and uh, But, wow, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, every now and then I run into a— and, and, and sometimes it's guys who agree with us theologically, brother. Mm. And I think you know what I'm talking mm. about, uh, uh, saying that— um, 
excuse me, I, I lost my train. I looked over at him and I lost. It happens. That happens to me soon. <laughs> well, while you're thinking about that, I well, lost I'll, my train of thought. I, that hap- I, I, I lose count how many times that happens. It, it's the worst when it happens in the middle of a lecture. I'll be giving lecture yeah. points, and I just I'm, students are staring at me, and yeah. in mid-sentence, I'm like, what in the world am I talking about? Oh, I, I love it when it happens you. in a sermon, because I get to just talk about whatever I wanted that, to. Well, that's yeah. all your sermons. I mean, yeah. it happens in each one of them. <laughs> well, at my age, you could always say it's my age, but no, I don't think I, I think I did this when I was in my 30s. I, yeah. Occasionally, I'd lose my train of thought. But, it just uh, gets worse, because you have so much more in there now. Right. That's, uh, what what yeah. I was going to bring up, though, yeah. Will, you have... I'm reading The Preacher and the Song, which is a wonderful book, and it's it's compact, so it's digestible. Right. And you actually get it. Right. These these excellent nuggets. You take, I don't know if I'd call it a a, a unique order of Solomon's works, because I'm sure you're not the only one to say it. Yes. But the the general consensus of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that Solomon would have written Song of Songs first, maybe in his more passionate days, yes, you know, yeah. with his thousand harem. I mean, he lo- I mean, he makes Gene Simmons of Kiss look like, you know, <laughs> like like a monk. You know, this guy is just like he's the ultimate playboy. And then Proverbs would be his midlife wisdom type of thing, and Ecclesiastes at the end, looking back on his life. You take a different order in this book. Correct? Yeah, actually, the rabbis said that. The mm. rabbis in the Talmud said that Song of Solomon is uh, uh, in his youth, uh-huh. uh, with his emphasis on love. Uh, in his middle ages, he got a little bit wiser, and he wrote Proverbs, right. and then, of course, his pessimism at the end. I see that the, uh, that the uh, Proverbs is early, mm. and here's why. Um, uh, the emphasis on love, uh, wow, he's, even in the Song of Solomon, he's got a harem. Uh, and yet you read in First Kings, evidently he starts well, but then you get to chapter 11, he starts amassing this harem. Mm-hmm. So I suggest mm-hmm. that, uh, that, uh, when he was younger, he was wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, First Kings says that. You don't have to get to be old, Solomon. He was wise when he was young. But then he started to wander away. And so in his middle years is uh, the um, uh, the um, uh, 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 Song of Solomon uh, where, you know, he's starting to get feisty. And then, of course, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes are Kohelet. Uh, in his old age. So I think that's the I chronological. Think, I don't think I ever, <laughs> no, you said it goes, there's some rabbis that teach that. It was reading your book when I, when you first oh. gave me an advanced copy and I, I was honored to be able to endorse it. And, and You just and wanted get, to be able to say that, that you endorsed the book. Right, huh? yeah, exactly. let's just stop right there. Yeah. No, um, it was reading that. I was I was totally instructed in this. I'm like, that makes perfect sense that, that Solomon would, when he was younger, he was wise. He's praying for wisdom. Yes. He's given it. Yes. It would make perfect sense in, in more of his pure years, if we can use that word, but in but taking on the throne. This, I mean, he's... That makes sense that he would have Proverbs at that point. Song of Solomon is now he's gotten really, yeah. I think of him as getting used to being well, king and everything you know, that, he wants. That, you know, that, that begs the question in my mind, does, could Song of Songs be somewhat of a lament? Meaning as he's now aged mm. and mm. he's looked back and, he's, and he's, he was wise earlier and he's older and he's looking back and he's mm. thinking to himself, Man, I, I miss love. You know, and Pastor, I saw it play out. You've got an insight mm. there that I think I, I should have put in the book. I, I like that. Uh, it, just as Ecclesiastes says, I tried this, I tried this, and failed. You know, I tried. You know, people say, well, how can Solomon write a book in which he's not the hero? Mm. Good question. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest objection mm-hmm. to my view. He's writing about himself and criticizing himself 
and, and saying, I tried to get her and I was unsuccessful? Yes, it is. Because I've learned, I've learned. I'll do that in my, my sermons. I'll tell my people sometimes, hey, I've, I've blown this. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. So, so look, you know, I tried this and I tried to talk her into joining my harem and she didn't, you know, and I've learned, you know, maybe it is a mini confession. Mm. Uh, 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 I, 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 yeah, I like that. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying I'll, that. I'll, I'd be happy to endorse the next <laughs> yeah. edition. You're going to keep my endorsement on there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can put a footnote to Ryan in there somewhere. Kidding. Good. <laughs> well, just That's in, a good point. Man. And Very discussing good. all this, I mean, there's so much rich truth. What are churches missing? Look what churches are missing out on when preachers do not teach the Old Testament. Mm. I mean, just in our discussion alone mm. of Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. You know, in defense of those Dear brothers, they say, well, you know, Ecclesiastes is hard. Song of Solomon, what do I do with it? I'll get to that later. <laughs> you know, let's go to Romans or John right, or something right. like that. You know, I'm, I'm not, the next pastor I, could I, take that one. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm not justifying it. I'm trying to say, you know, uh, that, that maybe they're saying, I'll get to that later. Uh, you know, let's go to John 3. Uh, you know. So uh, I understand where they are. But uh, maybe there's something there that's not only good to know, but it'll preach, as the Southern boys said. That, mm. That'll preach, uh, you know, uh, loyalty to your spouse, mm. uh, love from God. That'll preach. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, foolish endeavors, uh, wine, women, and song are not going to bring success, Ecclesiastes, but fearing God and his commandments. Wow, that'll preach. And so we need to see it not just as an intellectual exercise as to how to interpret the books, but uh, they, they become very preachable uh, in, in these approaches. Can I, going back a little to Ecclesiastes, what would you say to the undiscerning reader of Ecclesiastes that reads Ecclesiastes and grabs hold of a verse and thinks, oh, it's in the Bible that's a great verse. God desires me to be happy, like uh, Ecclesiastes 3.12. And so I'm going to put that on social media and say, look, it's in the Bible. God's desire for me is to, to mm. be happy in whatever my heart desires. What, would you, what, what counsel would you give as it relates to reading Ecclesiastes for your average yeah. layperson? When I teach Ecclesiastes, I mention the birds, B-Y-R-D-S. The band? The uh, group? The band. Uh-huh. They made a song. It's almost word for word from Ecclesiastes. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, time to love and a time to hate. And then when it gets to a time for peace, then they say, oh, I pray God, pray, I, I, I pray that it's not too late. In the height of the anti-war huh. movement, huh. Uh, the birds, uh, it was actually voted, uh, I don't know if it'd be voted today, but it was voted two decades ago as the most popular song to come out of the peace movement wow. in the 1960s. Lifted right out of Ecclesiastes Lifted 3. right out of yeah. Ecclesiastes. So, so um, uh, well, I think Ecclesiastes is more than that, of course, but but you can see how it has a, has a fascination with people. And, of course, uh, youth preachers remember uh, God in the days of your youth, uh, you know. So, so it, it has had an appeal, but People just didn't know what to do with those mm. negative passages. Mm. And, and I think that's why a study of the whole book with that key on the back door locking goads and nails can recapture the entire book 
and not just leave it for the birds to sing a uh, <laughs> a uh, a folk song. <laughs> yeah, as great as the song it was. Absolutely. What do you what do you think of? We oftentimes, I guess, maybe pinpoint the birth of philosophy in Western Europe. You know, not Europe, but you know what I'm saying. Back to Thales and and Socrates and Plato and these great thinkers in the Western Hemisphere. I tend to look at Ecclesiastes as the first philosophical book. And if, if that's the case, then we have an inspired philosophy and hmm. in that these other thinkers may have been, you know, influenced by some of the themes in this, such as vanity, you know, everything is, uh, aspects of life are useless type of thing, which is totally platonic in so many different ways. Well, just say amen to that. I can't add to that. It's wonderful. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, but, let's just stop there then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we don't. <laughs> I got my blur back on the book. You're, you're, I got Ryan off that and put me you're my back. We, we don't have to look to the Greek philosophers about Sophos and right. Sophia right. And, and wisdom. Here's wisdom right within the Hebrew scriptures. A thousand years Amen. before Socrates, yep. Plato, and Aristotle. Hmm. Yeah, well said. <laughs> what is your observation and teaching at Masters University? Um, students entering today, um, what is their level of biblical literacy when it comes to the Old Testament? Um, are they? Do you find students today have have they read it? Are hmm. they familiar with it? What? Yes, they know Psalm twenty three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have it tattooed on their back somewhere. <laughs> yes, they, yeah. they know Psalm 23. It, it's abysmal, their lack of understanding. Is it all their fault, or could it be in the pulpit or mm. in the Sunday school classes where these have not been taught? Hmm. Uh, I oftentimes have one girl uh, in class of 90. I'll ask some vague question on the Old Testament and this girl raises her hand and she nails it. She, she nails it. I said, you were homeschooled, right? And she said, yes. And she was, huh? <laughs> She was homeschooled. Mm. So this one girl who was homeschooled knew the answer. But so many of the kids, Sunday school, mm. and they just haven't, uh, you know, they do not know the Old Testament. Uh, uh, maybe a, you know, a David... His sling and Goliath. Okay, they 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 know that, but the knowledge is abysmally poor uh, of our our kids uh, coming out. Uh, sometimes even Christian school kids say, you know. So it doesn't mean that they're they're fully knowledgeable. But no, uh, our freshmen uh, today at Masters University need a course in Old Testament survey. They do. What about to pick up on on Chris's questions? What about seminary students? Um, do you find that seminary students are coming in as the, as you know, you like you, you've been doing this for 40, 50 yes. years. Yes. Have you seen um, that there is a lack of biblical literacy? Absolutely. The, the, the more years into this versus when you first started? Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, 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 not, the seminary students have changed over the years. In my years, <laughs> I went to seminary in 1969. Most guys came out of college, and it wasn't always Bible majors. They came out of college right into seminary. Now you've got some that do that, but you've got a large number of seminarians in their 30s, yay, maybe even in their 40s. Uh, right. They, they graduated. They got a job. Then God called them into the ministry. And after 10, 15 years working a secular job, they go to seminary. Now, 
yes, they come without, a, you know, maybe a Bible undergrad Bible major. Uh, that may be true, but they, uh, they are highly motivated because they've made a sacrificial decision to grab their wife and sometimes their kids uh, and uproot, leave a career, and come to seminary. So they're highly motivated to be in seminary, but they don't always bring a biblical uh, Mm. understanding. Their undergraduate chemistry major or their business major didn't prepare them in Bible. But while that may be, it's not a serious handicap, they overcome it with their high motivation Mm. to be there and and to learn. Uh, They don't bring a particular skill in languages. You know, the older you get, the harder it is to acquire a new language, and that includes Greek and Hebrew. Mm. So even though you may be in your mid-30s, it's harder for a guy in his mid-30s to get Greek and Hebrew than a guy who's 22 years old right out of college. So uh, highly motivated, but uh, maybe harder to get the languages. And we do believe that the languages are very, very important. It's one of the... um Glad you said that. It's one of the we share an affinity. Southern California Seminary and Master's University, and Master Seminary as well. And that's where we where we uphold the biblical languages. Absolutely. And when other seminaries and schools, you know, it's they want they want behinds in the seats. They need yeah. they need those students there. So when one of the most more, one of the more attractive ways of doing that is cut the credit amounts out. Yeah. And guess what gets cut out with those credits? The language the courses, because those are for what Dr. Warner just said. It is generally hard when you're older to learn these things, and it's intimidating. Um, come to find out, actually, you can, you can learn it pretty well, and especially if you have a good professor. But still, and there's so many good resources out there to help you learn. But uh, when you cut out the languages, the original languages, you might get more people in your school, but they're less educated on a level that is, should have been and used to be required. Even of a, a basic pastor, your basic uh, pastoral ministry is massively huge. You know, pastors were expected to know something of the original Greek and the original Hebrew, you know? And so when you're, you're actually cutting these classes out, you're getting not only more biblically illiterate uh, graduates, or at least them coming in for it, but then you're also, you're, you're, you're producing more biblically illiterate pastors behind the pulpit that aren't able to work with the languages that they should have been getting in seminary. No, yeah, th- I mean, this could be a discussion for another time, but I think I'm a, you know, I'm an example of an older guy. I do have a, an undergrad in Bible, um, that prepared me, but I came from a church tradition that didn't, you know, uh, encourage going to seminary. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need seminary and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. Um, Where'd I've, you go? Moody Bible Institute? No, I, I'm not real proud of my where I, I went to Hope International University. Mm-hmm. I spent my time in the early 2000s battling open theism. Um, so that was actually, it was a formative time for me because I, I learned a lot about, it was kind of all the rage back then and the emergent church and all that yeah. good stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, but I had enough discernment and enough Bible in me to know that what I was hearing was not good. I, so. I hear you. Um, on the biblical languages though, I've taken only a few Greek classes and I know enough to use the resources well, mm-hmm. but you've said to me repeatedly, and it's been a good encouragement. So I'm going back to invest more time in that. And you've said to me, yeah, but you, you can't criticize them. You're at the, right. you're at the mercy of the tools. And that's really true. The, in theological areas, I feel I can be more of a critic and more discerning in some of those things. Um, but as more and more pastors are just getting MAs and they're neglecting the MDiv and the languages, yeah. 
I think that the end net result is, and what scares me, what my desire to go back and, and, and learn more is so that I can be more discerning and I'm not so much, uh, uh, held captive by the tools yeah, well, on some of the more critical areas. There's maybe. some good resources out there as well. I recently did a, a, a podcast with the founder of Biblingo, mm-hmm. and, and uh, if you want to, you know, sharpen up your Greek and Hebrew, there are programs that will help you uh, in, in that regard. Um, no, you are not probably not going to be the scholar that uh, you could have if you'd had three or four years of undergraduate Greek. I understand that, but at least you're making an effort. And also, uh, you can know enough to where you can critically evaluate a commentary instead of just automatically accepting mm-hmm. it. Uh, and uh, uh, so there's never too late <laughs> uh, for languages. I, I, I mean, you know, Spurgeon didn't go to seminary. He didn't even go to college. Oh, well, that justifies – no. Uh, Spurgeon but he founded knew, a college. Spurgeon yeah. knew Greek. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, you know <laughs> he knew Greek and, and he learned Hebrew because that was the education uh, of, of his day, even from a Baptist family like himself. Uh, he knew Greek e- even though he didn't go uh, to, to Cambridge and, mm. and the other institutions. So it's a little bit different. Yeah, well, Spurgeon didn't – he knew Greek, and you can see that in his preaching that he knew Greek. He knew he, – he had a workable langu- That's uh, right. knowledge of the language without a doubt. You know, one of my favorite quotes – because I teach New Testament Greek as well, just like you do uh, in the seminary. Um, A.T. Robertson, the Greek great, the great Greek grammarian of the 20th century, Southern Baptist, he had this wonderful quote: um, "The Greek New Testament is the New Testament; all else is translation." Good, you know. Well it's like, put. and so you, our translations are wonderful for the most part, but there's always going to be that little veil there, you know, that the original languages will just when you're when you're interacting with the original languages, you sort of maybe have a more authoritative stance to be able to stand and preach what you're preaching as opposed to just taking what someone else has said and you're hoping that they're correct with that with that Hebrew or Greek knowledge, but you have no authority to even question it. And so you, all you can do is just kind of pass it on. But when you have some type of workable language of the New Testament, it's something about you're digging into actual God's inspired word. The English wasn't inspired. It wasn't Theopanoustos. You know, the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Koine Greek was. That is the scriptures. I, I recently wrote a, an introductory first chapter added to A.T. Robertson's Mm. wonderful little commentary on James. I was asked to do it. Fontes Press Mm. is publishing it. And as I worked through this super classical Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, I was struck by the fact that he had a pastoral heart, Mm. you Mm. know, and and, uh, as he commented on the Greek of James, he made the transition to the message of James to our lives. Hmm. You know, um, I, I recently uh, made a, shall I say it, pilgrimage <laughs> <laughs> to Louisville. <laughs> I lectured at Southern, Southern Baptist Seminary, Seminary yeah, yeah. and they took a, a, a field trip on Saturday <laughs> afternoon to the local seminary, uh, cemetery, excuse me, local <laughs> cemetery, and they took me to A.T. Robertson's oh, grave. That's oh, that's right. And here yeah. this Protestant, this uh, Bible church, this Baptist guy, I knelt. I didn't kneel to pray to him, but I did homage. <laughs> oh, man. He's getting <laughs> to, close to grave sucking. That's what he did. To, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> to A.T. Robertson's grave, and I said, A.T., I know you can't hear me, I know that, but thank you for your influence. 
ambulance on Amen. So it, we should honor. Yeah. Uh, I was over in University of Durham, and I went to J.B. Lightfoot's tomb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I went to him, and I said, J.B., I know you can't hear me, but I told my students when I came here, I was going to thank you hey. for your commentaries on Galatians and Philippians. That reminds uh, me. So my wife and I just recently went to Nashville, and I went to uh, uh, the Cash Museum. So not J.B., but J.R. Cash. <laughs> oh, and I Johnny said, thank Cash. you, Johnny Cash, for all of your wonderful music, The Man in Black, my favorite of all time. Who uh, ended his life, I think, as a believer. He sure did. Yeah. And I came close to grave-sucking as well, <laughs> you know, if I could have just found his grave. Yeah. Just Hopefully we can say that, laugh about it. <laughs> Don't take it, you Absolutely. know, seriously, yeah, but uh, we need to do, to show respect to the Spurgeons and the A.T. Robertsons and, and those who contributed That's to right. us. That's yeah. right. Show honor to where honors do. Yeah, we don't yeah. pray to them, but we can be thankful for yeah. them. Amen. <laughs> so what would you say to um, pastors just regarding the Old Testament? How would you encourage them? Yeah, you know, it starts simply by reading. You, you know, you say, well, you read through the Bible in a year. You read it. Read it. Read it. Hmm. And then uh, start, uh, uh, you know, start simple. Ruth, you, you, know, uh, you know, you don't have to take on Second Kings, you know, for years preaching through Second Kings. And I know some pastors who say, well, Isaiah's quoted a lot in the New hmm. Testament. Well, if you haven't had a lot of experience in preaching through the Old Testament, don't start on Isaiah either. There's some clinkers and some, <laughs> some, some chapters that are tough. Start with Ruth. Uh, start with Esther. Uh, you know, start with that and uh, a narrative. A narrative. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and and then move to Isaiah's yeah. and, and Ezekiel's and things like that. But uh, you know, I remember a pastor, and he says, "I'm going to finish Isaiah," and the poor people were worn out. <laughs> they, they were worn out because he, I got a committed to. Uh, well, okay, but they're still waiting for him to finish. Uh, yeah, right. I think he moved on to another church before he finished. Now try Ruth. Try Esther. Now he's in Second Kings. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. So uh, there's a place to start. Yeah. And finally, just for everyday Christians, uh, what would you encourage them? Okay, uh, I, I would say start reading the books that you haven't been reading. You've been reading mm. Psalms and mm. Proverbs. Somebody mm. told you to read five Psalms a day and one chapter of Proverbs a day, and you'll finish it in a month. Okay, uh, you've been mm. doing that. You have your devotions and Psalms. Start reading First and Second Kings. Uh, you might find it tremendously interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, because of the narrative mm-hmm. there. But uh, just start reading some of these. Familiar, you don't have to know Hebrew. Uh, just read it and, and ask the Lord to open it up to you. And uh, you'll be surprised at the things that you'll you know, bump into, that you'll mm-hmm. enjoy. Uh, you know, you don't have to start with uh, Haggai. You know, you'll get to Haggai. But start with uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Bonner. It was a privilege to have you here. Good. And thank you, gentlemen. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.